0: From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is NewsNerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Food Royalty Mark Bittman joins us today to talk about a career spanning from the late 70s and early 80s until now. Of course, he's the author of the 1998 cookbook, How to Cook Everything, and the series that followed. He worked with the New York Times for 30 years, including at his Minimalist column, and has made America aware of the systemic problems embedded in how we eat with books like Animal, Vegetable, Junk. Today we hear a reflective side of Bittman. We'll hear about his grandparents, who settled in the United States after leaving Europe, how the media has changed since he joined the industry, and his take on America's food problem. It's Wednesday, March 29th, and this is News Nerds. If you're a cook, you probably have a dog-eared copy of Mark Bittman's famous tome, How to Cook Everything, which was originally published in 1998. Mark started writing for the New York Times before that in 1984. He left in 2015 and has been writing, cooking, and reporting since then. He expanded How to Cook Everything into a series of cookbooks and has been writing about the agricultural system, climate change, and the American diet on the side. Right now, he hosts the podcast Food with Mark Bittman with his daughter, Kate Bittman. And by the way, thanks so much to Kate for helping us coordinate this interview. Mark Bittman, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Great to be here, Ezra. Thanks for having me.
0: So, if I have this right, uh, your grandparents immigrated to the United States from Romania and Poland. Did they ever talk to you about what what their lives were before they moved to the United States, um, or you know, the process of coming here?
1: I mean, it's a great question, a great question, and really, the answer is no. Um, my paternal grandparents, who were from. Romania and Czechoslovakia really never learned to speak English and and died pretty young. So I didn't know them well. My maternal grandparents, who were pretty well assimilated um, and lived well into their 80s, just refused to talk about the old country. Anytime I asked them, they would say, No, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. And you know, years later in reading about where they lived and, and what it was like, I understand why they left. They left in 1920 and it was a period of, it was a huge period of pogroms and anti-Semitism. So they just never wanted to think about it. One time I, um, because I learned a lot of cooking from my grandmother. I mean, she didn't talk about it, but I'd watch her and see her cook and she'd show me how to do stuff. And one time I thought, I'm just going to interview her about cooking. And I showed up with a tape recorder and a little microphone and stuff. And I started asking them questions. And they're like, what are you doing? Stop. Why are you torturing us like this? So I said, okay. So I never asked them again after that.
0: And did anybody in your family really get to the bottom of what their story was? No.
1: Never. No. Because my parents... I mean, my parents weren't that inquisitive. I think they just, my grandparents, I think, came to the United States. They were happy to be here. No one hassled them. They lived without, evidently, without experiencing anti-Semitism or much anti-Semitism. And I think they just wanted to leave the past behind.
0: So I want to talk about how they taught you how to cook. Um, Were they the only people in in your childhood that uh cooked or taught you how to cook and uh you know what what did they cook and how did that cooking influence what you cook i guess that's three questions in one but i'm curious about that
1: that's fine um i mean my mother cooked every day so she's the person who was really the model and although my mother was not an adventurous cook and sort of cooked by rote and cooked pretty much the same thing every week for the 15 or 17 years I lived at home, she was a paradigm of consistency. She cooked every day, she shopped almost every day. And although her cooking wasn't exciting, it was, for the time, it was it was pretty good. My grandmother had, I mean, what, what we now call Polish or Romanian specialties. I mean, she made what she called fried chicken, which was roasted chicken with garlic and paprika, She made what she called chicken fricassee, which was basically a stewed chicken with meatballs. She made awesome chopped liver, potato pancakes, kishka, which is stuffed cow's intestine. Um, She made this thing called shav, which is basically a soup starts with cow's foot. I mean, it was poor people's food. But it was the most interesting stuff that she cooked because as years went by she cooked more and more like a quote unquote american so we'd go for thanksgiving and there'd be turkey and cranberry sauce and pearl onions and that kind of stuff kind of like what everybody else was having but the interesting things were the things that she grew up cooking and i cook some of them although not that often
0: i think that a lot of the stories of how food is passed on is kind of interesting because you know we're a country of immigrants, and you know, he. Uh, I was back in Cleveland, Ohio, earlier this year, and that's kind of the the Polish side of the family. Uh, well, both my both my parents have some Polish, uh, in them, but they were talking about how what would be my great, great aunt used to just not talk about what she was doing. She didn't want to talk, but she would hand slice the pasta that she would make with a, with a knife. She wouldn't, she would just go and, and cut them as if they were angel hair pasta. And then, you know, it was funny because she didn't make a fuss about it, but everybody around her that was younger just was amazed by that.
1: Um, Yeah. That's a lot of work. And it yeah, takes a lot definitely. of
0: practice. So I want to go to kind of when you were in college, this is, Something that mm-hmm. relates to some other food interviews that I've done. Um, Christopher Kimball went to college for t- something totally different from food. and you know, he's now at Milk Street and did America's Test Kitchen. There was 13 years between when you graduated college, which was in New York. Um, and then when you started with The Times and you got a psychology degree. So what was happening in between then?
1: Well, I don't mean to be correcting you, but I graduated from college in Massachusetts and it was probably yeah, 15 years before I had my first piece in the Times. I was a community organizer. I was a cab driver. So was Chris Kimball. We used to talk about that. <laughs> um, I was a school teacher, and I tried to write. And it took me I graduated school in seventy-one and I published my first piece in New Haven in in the New Haven Advocate in nineteen eighty. So it was nine years of I was mostly first three, four years I was doing teaching and community organizing. And then I was mostly driving a cab and trying to write. And no one was interested in anything that I wrote until I started writing about food. And then suddenly, it really seemed quite suddenly, people were interested in what I wrote. And and so I started to write about food, which I liked. I mean, I was cooking and I really, I loved cooking and I liked writing about it. But I saw myself as someone who could write about anything. So I was doing a lot of general assignment reporting for a number of different papers. But I kept getting funneled into food. It was the food stuff that people liked best that I did. And really, I was enjoying it the most. So I'd say by 87 or certainly by 1990, I was writing exclusively about food. And it's funny that you mentioned Chris because in '87 I went to work for him at the old Cooks Magazine, which predates Cooks Illustrated, which is what became America's Test Kitchen. But Chris hired me to be editor of Cooks Magazine in '87, so we worked together from then until we started Cooks Illustrated together, and and worked. We worked together for probably seven or eight years.
0: Uh, and you didn't go through any formal. Uh, culinary education. And I think that a lot of other people that are very successful didn't either. So do you have an opinion on when formal cooking education is necessary? Or I guess, is it really?
1: That's a really good question. I think if you want to run a restaurant, you need some business training, because there is all of that. But, you know, the old way of teaching people how to cook was to stick them in a kitchen and hand them a knife or hand them a box of parsley and say, here, separate the leaves from the stems. And when you're done with that, peel this box of potatoes. And after a year or two of working in a kitchen, I used to say to people, don't go to culinary school, just get a job in a restaurant. Really, I don't know what people should do now. I mean, I I don't know how restaurants really work anymore, and um, I'm not sure restaurants are set up to be good teaching environments. But but certainly back in the day, all of the chefs who are my contemporaries, almost all of them learned by being apprentices in restaurants.
0: Well, what happened in restaurants that changed the the educational atmosphere?
1: I'm just not sure. I'm not sure chefs want to invest that kind of time in in apprentices that they used to. But they may. Like I said, I don't feel I don't really feel qualified to answer that question intelligently.
0: So you were working with The Times and you're, you know, working uh, on a lot of writing about food. And then you, you started to research and develop recipes for how to cook everything. Um, how do you develop a recipe?
1: It's funny, I. Um... I started How to Cook Everything before I started the minimalist column. The minimalist column was a weekly cooking column of simple cooking that I did for the Times. But all those recipes, almost all of those recipes came out of cooking for my family. And then when I started writing about food, I thought, well, I should really cook different things. If I cook the same thing every night, I won't be learning anything new and I won't be generating new recipes. So I just started to try to expand. Then I expanded, what, in two ways. One was I bought cookbooks from other countries, from other cuisines. And the other was I tried to cook with as many people as I could. And you always learn when you cook with someone else. It's really the best way to learn something is to just spend time in the kitchen with another person. Even if you know more than they do, they know things that you don't do, or they will think of things that stimulate you to figure out things in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. So in those days, that's mostly the 90s, early 2000s. I just tried to learn new things all the time. I tried to, I went to restaurants and I'd say, oh, wow, this is great. How do I do it? How would I do it? What would be different? What do I need to know that I don't know in order to do it? I could call the chef since I had the Times credential by then. So people took my phone calls. And I just aggressively went after learning new recipes all the time. Did you
0: ever look back on how to cook everything and wish that you would have put a recipe that you didn't in in the cookbook?
1: It's a great question. I'll tell you a story about that. Great. So I worked on how to cook everything for, I don't know, three years, something like that. And when I was done, I mean, editors came and went. The publisher changed hands. All of these crazy things were happening. I just kept working. And when I was done, I had a manuscript, you know, six inches high. I mean, it's a giant manuscript, a yeah. 1,000 pages, 2,000 pages. And, um, and I was lucky enough to have a terrific editor and to have enough time to go through the manuscript with her and another editor and really look at every recipe and make a judgment about whether it belonged in there or not. Because at the beginning, we didn't really have a concept for what How to Cook Everything was going to be. We just called it the big book. And we thought it's just going to be a book of a lot of recipes. But then we thought this is a general cookbook for people who don't know how to cook or for people who don't know how to cook very well. And we need to make sure that it has every basic recipe we can think of. So, in fact, as we were editing what became how to cook everything, we took a hundred or a hundred and fifty recipes out because we thought they were too esoteric or too complicated. I mean, recipes for foie gras and bear and squirrel and
0: you know, mm-hmm. kind
1: of odd things that were in the old editions of. The Joy of Cooking, because the idea was that this was going to be the new joy of cooking. We replaced a lot of those recipes with really simple stuff like how to make popcorn, how to make a grilled cheese sandwich, how to make a hamburger, that kind of stuff. And when the book came out, people were really grateful that we had those simple recipes. And people would come up to me on the street and say, thank you for teaching me how to make a grilled cheese sandwich, which... You know, seemed absurd in a way, but it wasn't. People were grateful for that. So, of course, if I were to do it again, and we have revised it twice, we lose some recipes that no longer seem popular or certainly aren't stylish, and we gain some more that are stylish. Um, But the core is pretty much the same. If you look at the original How to Cook Everything, the big yellow 1998 version, it's really, really good. I mean, modesty aside, it's really good. There's a reason people like it.
0: I'm curious about kind of how you fit in in the culinary community. It's it's a lot of different cultures and social backgrounds that kind of go into that, that industry now and what people think about when they think about cooks and bakers and, and people that are known in the public eye. So you're working with The Times, you're writing how to cook everything, you're starting to become more and more known. Do you think that you fit in?
1: I um, I mean, I don't want to get too personal, but from a kind of neurotic point of view, I always felt that I didn't fit in. Um, And part of that was that until at least 2000, I lived in New Haven and I felt like where things were really happening was in New York. And I went to New York. I mean, New Haven's only 70 miles from the city and, and I grew up in the city. So there was always this kind of funny tension and I went a lot, but I felt like it was an era where lots of restaurants were opening. There were book parties all of the time. Um, People were cooking together, there were galas, there were celebrations of stuff, and I didn't go to a lot of that. So I did kind of feel like an outsider, but gradually, and especially after 97, when I started writing weekly for the Times, you know, I think I became kind of a consummate insider in a way. I was one of very few people who had a guaranteed contract with the New York Times, and that didn't become less important as my from 97 till 2015 I wrote at least once a week and sometimes three times a week for the time so I certainly felt like I was as central to the scene as anybody at that point
0: I want to talk about how you might have changed how you thought about food um you've written a lot about agricultural reform and what food means for the future of the planet which I think and you've said before, is a very underrated part of how we think about food. You know, if you look at global carbon emissions, you can link like a third of them to, in some way, to agriculture, which is, you know, that's a very large part of how the world eats and how the world works. Um, So how did you start to think about food like this?
1: It's also a great question, and I can date it. Um, It just became clear that The American style of eating was not a style of eating that was going to work globally. That concentrating on animal products and industrial agriculture in general, people were starting to talk about climate change, but it was also clear just by doing the math that there wasn't enough, there isn't enough land on earth to raise enough animals for everybody to eat, like people in the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the sort of English speaking the english-speaking world and so i set out to learn more about vegetables and vegetarian cooking not that i wanted to be a vegetarian i just thought it was important to learn how to cook with less meat and that culminated in 2007 i think this kind of recognition that as you said Our style of agriculture is a huge contributor to climate change. Our style of eating is responsible for any number of chronic diseases, which in turn have become the leading cause of death in the United States. And none of this is sustainable. But at that point, it was really hard for a quote-unquote food writer to write about serious topics like that for a food section. The food magazines didn't want those kinds of things. The Times didn't want those kinds of stories in the food section. It was a challenge for me. What wound up happening is that I spoke to some people at the Times out of the food section, and they encouraged me to write those kinds of stories, not for the food section, but for some of the news sections. So the first piece I wrote that was really on this topic was called Taming the Meat Guzzler. And it was about the relationship between industrially produced meat, climate change, and nutrition. And that wasn't the first story written on that subject, but it was a big story in the Times and it was top of the most emailed list for a long time and so on and so on. And after that, I was able to write about more serious issues. And when I, a couple of years later, I proposed writing a weekly opinion column about food. And I did do that for five years. And then when I left the Times, I felt like I had done that long enough. Um, And then I left the Times and wrote Animal, Vegetable, Junk, which is a book basically about the food system, um, how we got here and where we need to go to get out of this. There's sort of two 15-year, in this 30-year career, which is now 40 years. But in that first 30 years, there were kind of two 15-year segments. The first was becoming an accomplished recipe writer let's say and publishing how to cook everything and other books but the second was really making the transition to somebody who wrote not only recipes but about food in general
0: so were you reading books or articles by Michael Pollan or were you listening to what people like Alice Waters had to say about food
1: yeah well they're both old friends so yes I was really excited when Omnivore's Dilemma came out. Um, Michael had written interesting things about food before that. I think if we're going to talk about that history, a lot of credit goes to Francis Moore LePay, who wrote Diet for a Small Planet in 1971, just celebrated its 50th anniversary, a book that was so far ahead of its time, it's hard to imagine and Eric Schlosser's fast food nation which really was a you know an important exposé about how how terribly things are done in the fast food part of the american food system which of course is the dominant part of the american food system at this point
0: right were, was there something that surprised you when you were writing animal vegetable junk or was or reporting for the times that really made you more inclined to make this a devoted part of your career
1: Surprise is a hard word because much of what I learned, I learned gradually. So there wasn't a really aha moment. Um, the the invention and the discovery of the process that created chemical fertilizer that is synthesized, was able to take nitrogen out of the air and synthesize it into a form of ammonia that could, could be used to make fertilizer, which was a huge change in the agricultural system. I didn't know that story. So as I learned that story, I thought there's a backstory there to the story of how from say the 15th century on, there was a constant search for ways to apply manure or other waste, other other cured waste onto crops so that they would grow better because it was being recognized as those centuries went by that the new form of agriculture row cropping monocropping that is growing only one crop at a time and really taking more out of the soil than you put back in that that was depleting the soil by the 19th century this was seen as an emergency and the only thing that saved industrial agriculture was the invention of the process it's called the um Haber-Bosch process of taking nitrogen out of the air and turning it into fertilizer. So that was one big realization. And I think the other is that the history of the United States is really the history of enriching white men. And that that began pretty much when the colonies were settled, When, when genocide against indigenous people began and when land began to be taken from them and given away. It was almost always given to white men. Um, And that continued, and that continued through the Civil War. And when there was an opportunity after the Civil War to make this truly a, a country that was a country of equal opportunity, we had a peek at what that might look like during Reconstruction, but Reconstruction was defeated and rolled back. Really, the agricultural system is Still, to this day, run by white men, for white men, almost exclusively. And that, again, that kind of, there wasn't an aha moment about that for me. I knew about Reconstruction. I knew about the defeat of the progressive movement. But um, I think learning more detail about that, as a non-academic, especially because I'm not, that was really interesting to me. You've
0: uh, worked with different newspapers and different media publications. Um, you've also worked with Purple Carrot, which was, which uh, is a is a, a meal kit subscription uh, company. And you know you're recording a podcast now. You have a website, so you know you're involved in a lot of a lot of types of media, or you were. Do you think that you found the best type of media that that you personally like to work with?
1: i mean for now uh it's the best for me for now i loved having a column and when i stopped writing the column i was really happy not to have weekly deadlines again but now we're doing a newsletter three four times a week we're doing the podcast almost every week i have weekly deadlines again it's a little bit different and i'm still writing so I don't know. I have the luxury to not work as hard as I used to, and I'm I'm happy about that. But I'm still working pretty hard, and I still write something almost every day. So it's not that different, really. As for media changing, when I started writing about food, you could literally name the food writers in this country. I mean, you could literally count them and name them. There were it was in the dozens. It was not even in the hundreds. And now there's probably tens of thousands of people who consider themselves food writers and they're all published because anybody can publish, anyone can self-publish. And, you know, you have a story of, you have a chance of writing a story that's going to be as popular as any story that's written for the New York Times. So it's really different in that way. The hierarchy of publications is breaking down. And I think that's a fascinating thing to watch. I'm glad I'm not a beginning food writer right now. I'm glad I have a reputation and the ability to kind of write what I want and still get paid sometimes to do it. Um, But I do think that the evolution is fascinating.
0: Um, I really like to know about your hobbies. Um, You're a runner (laughs) and you have a pilot license.
1: You know, I would really say that my main hobby is cooking. I just want to be clear that... um, I, mean, I want to be clear that I'll talk about those things. But I remain obsessed with cooking. I mean, the second we get off the phone, I'm go- off the Zoom, I'm going into the kitchen and I know exactly what I'm going to do And I've been thinking about it much of the day. And that's not atypical. I cook every day. So there's that. I do have a pilot's license. I haven't flown in 10 years because you have to be really good to be a pilot. I mean, if you're going to fly you have to practice a lot. And when I started writing the opinion column for the Times, which was in 2010 or 2011, I thought I can either be really good at writing this opinion column, or I could be really good at flying, but I can't <laughs> be good at both. There's just not time enough. So I stopped flying. And and recently, I, I mean, I run much less than I used to because um, my knees are just shot, but I have started swimming for exercise and I quite like that. So yeah. But it is funny that when you talk about hobbies, it really is funny that cooking remains, I would call it a hobby. Cause if I didn't, if people weren't interested in what I cooked, I wouldn't care. I would still do it.
0: What are you going to cook today?
1: I have some, some local, um, first of the season kale. I've already, I've already, um, Hard boiled that and squeezed it dry and dried it out a little bit in olive oil. And I'm going to make some kind of flatbread with that, with that kale and some cheese. And I have a soup that I made a couple of days ago. I'm going to augment and I'm alone. So I'm not going to do a lot of cooking. It's just me.
0: It's always been a tradition of my family to get the food, best food writing book. And it looks like you're going to be selecting those articles for this year. Man, you are
1: with it, yes. The book's in progress. I chose from about, I would say the original list was probably close to 200 and then got narrowed down to about 80, and there's room for 20 or 25. So I did want them to reflect, and I just finished writing the introduction. It's funny you brought this up. I finished writing the introduction today. Um, I wanted the assortment of stories to reflect that food writing has changed and just like in this conversation we've talked about not just recipe writing but the history of food and and um, food injustice and so on and so so there are cooking stories in there there are memoirist stories in there which are very popular in the food food world now but there are also policy stories and, and stories about how when you talk about food, you're talking about the environment, you're talking about health, you're talking about justice and so on. And those kinds of stories would not have been in Best American Food Writing in in years ago.
0: Mark Bittman, thank you so much.
1: It was really fun, Ezra. I noticed that you're closing with a little time left on the Zoom. But anyway, uh-huh. um, <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. It was really cheap.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I am cheap, yeah. (laughs) I only have 40 minutes. was Mark Bittman, food writer and author of How to Cook Everything. News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com, where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini-crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.